Our scripture passage for today is from two different parts of Exodus, beginning with uh, Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, and then after several uh, verses in Exodus, moving on to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Exodus 20, excuse me, Exodus 2, verse 23. This is telling the story of the Israelites in Egypt. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard the groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land, into a good and a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and with honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Skipping to chapter 20, looking at verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we go to your word to look at it this morning, we do so because you are a gracious God who has seen fit to give us your word in its entirety, that our lives may be full of blessing because you have touched us through your word with power through your Holy Spirit. Now we pray as we look at your word together, Lord, that my words might be in keeping with your word because it is holy and it alone is holy. We pray that our hearts and our minds might be touched with and through your power. Your word would not return from us without effect, but instead, through your power, might affect and change our lives for eternity. Not only bringing us into salvation, but also causing us to grow in the graces with which you abound. In Jesus' name, amen. In the past several years, one of the more humorous and thought-provoking comments that I've heard is this. You ain't the boss of me. You aren't my boss. 
Last year at this time, as Cassie and Sarah were getting settled into our home, this was a very significant issue. Cassie used to phrase it this way. Mommy, who's the boss? Who's the boss around here? As we approach the Ten Commandments, what are also called the Decalogue, meaning ten words or commands, the position of the one establishing these commands is of great significance. Who is the boss? Does he have authority? Does he have the right to be the boss? Is he really the boss or is he just setting himself up as a boss? This, in these two verses in Exodus chapter 20, this very short introduction to the Decalogue, the Ten Commands, the Ten Words, is significant for what it says. And so as we look at these words, we can expect to find out various things about who God is and who the people to whom he is talking, who they are. So we find out who is he? Who is this one who is setting the law? In the context of, does he have any right to be setting the law? Is he really the boss? What are his credentials? <clears throat> we find who he is. He is described as YHWH. That's called the Tetragrammaton. And what that means is that this is the way that the name here expressed as Lord in capital letters in your Bible. You see, um, <clears throat> it's pretty rare in your Bible that you find a word expressed in all capital letters. And Lord is expressed in all capital letters. Because this is the expression for, and there are different pronunciations of it. You may be familiar with this, but the reason there are different pronunciations of YHWH is because the Israelites would not say this name. Because they regarded it as a sacred name. You could not pronounce it. And what they finally did was they gave it uh, the... Uh, the Hebrew language is a language of consonants only. And the vowels were understood. And so when this YHWH came down throughout the years, it got to the point where nobody knew exactly how it was to be pronounced. Because if you don't say a vowel sound in the middle of a word, it doesn't. you don't have any idea how to say it. And so it's either pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. Perhaps some other way as well. What it means is this, and this is the significant issue. All of these other things are sort of surrounding peripheral parts to this name. It means that the person who is expressed here as Lord, who is he, is awesome God, almighty creator, the one who is. This illustrates to us the authority of the Decalogue, the Ten Commands. And this illustrates to us the uniqueness of the God, the boss, who is giving these Ten Commands. There is no other God other than this God. This one is the one who was and is and is to come. And that is in part the name YHWH uh, is an expression of the verb to be. He is to be. <clears throat> this would certainly be a basis for obedience to the law, wouldn't it? Learning that the one who was giving it was the one who was and is and is to come. The creator of all things, awesome God and almighty God. And as we see, as we looked at this past week, 
when God established the Ten Commandments on Mount Horeb, what happened was this. He got the people up there and he said, do not come any closer or you will be destroyed. And all of a sudden, all these miraculous uh, things started happening on the mountain. An earthquake and a fire and thunder and a loud trumpet that kept on getting louder and louder. These are perhaps tied to the aspect of the fact that this is awesome God who is giving this law. And what this created in the people was a great fear. They shook. And that is part of what we addressed last week. They were terrified, understandably so. So much so that they said to Moses, hold it, let's not do this thing again. From now on, the way we would really like it is if God talks to you and you tell us. That's much better. But the description of this authority who established the Ten Commandments is not complete in our first two verses. He is not just described as awesome God. Awesome God would be the, would, would be the person who would create in us fear to obey. Is that not correct? <coughs> A healthy respect. And as I think about this illustration that I introduced with, with regard to Cassie and Sarah coming into our home at the ages of two and four. The way they started out learning how to obey Sandy and me was in part a healthy respect because they didn't know anything else other than that we were in charge. But our passage tells us that God goes farther than just awesome God, creator, one and only God. Because our passage is also, we are told in our passage, uh, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, awesome God, your God, your God. Now that is something that we as people can grab a hold of, isn't it? Not just awesome God, but your God person who is intimately involved with you. And so to complete the illustration with regard to the children in our home, starts out with respect, moves to the point where the obedience, the respect aspect is still there with regard to obedience. But the fact that now I'm called daddy, and they know that I love them, and they know that Sandy loves them, makes them, gives them that added aspect as well for obedience. No longer is it just respect. It's love. This word is Elohim. It means the personal, intimate God who has made himself known to his own people. And so this illustrates to us the fact that the Ten Commandments are the basis for a personal relationship. Part of what I referred to last week. He cannot be your God, your God, your God, the one who is close to you, unless you recognize him as the one to whom you owe allegiance. He could not be the Israelites' God without demonstrating to them his desire for a relationship with them, built upon trust, confidence, love, and obedience. Now we find further in verse 2 the exact nature of their relationship with this God. How did he come to be your God? In other words, the God of the Israelites. How did it come to the point where he was not just a God who was up there, who was controlling all things, but beyond that, a God who cared 
intimately and deeply for these people and that they would know that he did that. How did they know him? They didn't know him by their own labors. They did not seek him out and find him, making him into their own God. So they could not take credit and they could not dictate the boundaries of their relationship with him. The way in which they knew him was because of what he had done for them, as it's illustrated further in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. So what? Ah, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The beautiful part of the passage. This is the point which he's saying, where I got personal and came and was involved in your life. Now, we know from the Exodus chapter 2 passage, Exodus chapter 2 and and chapter (coughs) 3, that God heard their cry for help. But he could have heard it for a long, long time and never become, as he describes himself, your God, their God. The way he became their God was because he actively got involved in their lives. (coughs) So these people then could point to experience in knowing the Lord. (coughs) Now, there are two dangers, at least, many more than two dangers. But there are at least two dangers in relationship with our relationship with God. We can attempt, on the one hand, to build our relationship with God only on experience. We can attempt, on the other hand, to build our relationship with God only on knowledge. What we are being told in our passage and is being illustrated to us is that our relationship with God as the Israelites is based upon both things. God is revealing himself to them in an absolute sort of orderly way, which is the knowledge aspect. And he is saying to them, this is what I'm telling you so that you will know it. But so that your faith is not based, and you realize your faith is not based simply upon what you know, but also upon what you experience, let me point out to you what I have done for you. I am the one who brought you up oh so very recently out of the land of Egypt where you were in slavery and bondage. (coughs) Experience has a powerful impact in determining the people's response to the Lord God. We see in the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua just just how much of a part experience does play in people's relationship with God. Let me read to you from Joshua chapter 2. The spies, you remember, came to Jericho, and they found a place to stay with Rahab. And Rahab hid them when the soldiers of Jericho came looking for them. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and said to the spies, I know, there you have it again, this knowledge aspect of things, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Experience has a powerful impact on determining people's relationship with God. 
experiences we see from the example of the Israelites and from this with regard to Rahab has this effect. It has the effect of being a reminder. For the Israelites, it is a reminder of his goodness. We must realize that they are a very short period out of Egypt. And then in Egypt, their memories would be fresh of the whip, hard labor, and the Egyptians' killing of all their baby boys. This is not a theoretical, abstract sort of thing. Delivered many, many years after the event, in which God says, I am the Lord, your God. You remember way back in the time of your ancestors, I did this for them. Now, Scripture is full of things in which God says, this is what I did way back in history. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, in establishing this covenant, in this law with these people, he says, remember yesterday. Remember the terrible situation in which you were in. Look to me and remember that I am the one who brought you up out of this terrible situation. I am the one who delivered you from the whips. I'm the one who delivered you from brick making, from terrible housing situations. We can just imagine what their situation of slavery would have been. I'm the one who delivered you from having to fear anything and everything. Your children, your boys, killed as a result of the Egyptians' fear of your population, the growth of your population. And so for the Israelites, this experience, what he is pointing out to them is a reminder of his goodness. It's also a reminder of their undeserving nature both in the bondage of Egypt, in the travels to the promised land. The interesting thing is, as much as he reminds them, they continue to grumble and to complain. And so it's important that the Lord does remind us. But this experience was also an encouragement for them. It was an encouragement for them to place their faith in him. As we see that Rahab did from putting her experience together with her knowledge. What happened to her? She said to the spies in this conversation, because of this and because I saved you, I want you to save my family when you come and destroy Jericho. And they did. And she is in the line of Christ. How do we know this God who reveals himself in these verses? Well, I can say... For Sandy and for me, if the Lord were establishing this sort of a covenant and giving us these sorts of commands at this point in time, the event that I think that he would reveal is our release from the country of Colombia. Most recently, he is the God who brought us up out of the land of Colombia. Look to your own life and your own experience. What has he done for you? How have you experienced God's deliverance of you from situations that were extremely difficult? Many, most, perhaps all of us can point to specific experiences that are examples of God's sovereign deliverance and blessing. Now these experiences are indeed evidence of his work, but without a greater deliverance, Such experiences are merely temporary blessings. 
Many people can point to foxhole experiences. However, the only thing that makes these things count in an eternal nature is the blessing that God is the God who brings his people up out of slavery to Satan, to sin, and to the eternal death of hell. This is truly the only basis for a relationship with him. And it is established for now and forever in trust in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, this, this promise is given. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Romans chapter 8. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What are we to do with this? What are we to do with this Jesus? What are we to do with this how we know him? We must seek this bondage-breaking power of the Lord on our behalf. We must cry out to the Lord for his deliverance, just as the Israelites did. And for us, the one and only significant cry for help is is a cry for deliverance from bondage to sin, Satan, and hell. That is where it all begins. We need to do this with sorrow for disobedience. We need to do it understanding that it is our only hope from the deliverance for the deliverance from the worst of all possible fates. And we need to do it recognizing <clears throat> that it is for us, this deliverance from bondage to sin, it is for us in the same way it was for the Israelites. Something that God alone can do. We can cry out for help, but unless he acts on our behalf, it is hopeless and we are helpless. Our response to knowing this deliverance, in other words, if we have already cried out for this help of salvation and received it, our response must be, as the Israelites, this, remembrance. So that we would look at our lives and look at the lives of others and be reminded that all of the difficulties of this life are able to be broken and turned to good purpose by the Lord. What is worse than bondage in Egypt? What we are told throughout Scripture is God has the power to break any bondage. That goes for physical bondage. That goes for spiritual bondage. That goes for any bondage in between. We like to talk about various and sundry difficulties that are realities of our world today. One of the ways of classifying a lot of them is dysfunctional. We talk about how helpless and hopeless these situations are. But they are not helpless and hopeless if we remember that God is the one who has broken the greatest of all bondages, which is the bondage to sin. And if he can do that, he is able to break any pattern of thought or of life, any reality that we deal with. I know I'm as skeptical as anybody else. When you're dealing with situations such as alcoholism or drug abuse or uh, sexual abuse or any of these other sorts of things, we look at these things and we have a tendency to say, oh, this is is tough. This situation, I can't say hopeless, but if I were to say what, what goes through my mind and we were to admit, humanly speaking, it is hopeless. We're so used to seeing people in these kinds of bondages, to experiencing ourselves in bondage, feeling hopeless. 
we have to turn back to the point when the Lord has brought deliverance for us. To remember that point in time and to say, as he delivered me from the power of sin, nothing is impossible for him. We also need to remember so that we would recognize... that he is willing and able to work in the lives of others. This is a message that needs to come forth from us. And we are given the illustration in Scripture of God's power being exercised in delivering all kinds of people in bondage. Psalm 68, verse 18. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. Deliver people from bondage, in other words. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. We not only need to remember, we also need to express gratitude. We need to have a free and a constant expression of our thankfulness to God. That's part of what worship in a worship service is all about. We are thanking God. That is part of why joy should be overflowing from our hearts and our lives. Because we know this freedom from bondage. We have been delivered from slavery. We know the meaning of cruel torment. That's a phrase that is not used much nowadays. But if we think about the slavery of black Americans and the spirituals that they sang and the depth of their spiritual feeling in release from that slavery... We realize that our slavery was no less than their slavery, even greater, because our slavery was one that we couldn't run away from. It was one that we could not escape by death, our slavery to sin. And so we must be grateful. And obedience should be part of fruit and evidence of our genuine gratitude. And finally, we must have hope and reliance. Again, And I'm reemphasizing it, yes. There is no bondage too deep for the love of Christ to penetrate and free us or others from. Therefore, you and I must constantly be going to the Lord, seeking his help in faith, without despairing, not giving up, not calling it hopeless, not thinking it's hopeless. And we must share the reason for the hope that is within us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are not only... God Almighty, but you are a personal, intimate God. That you have demonstrated and shown yourself to us in experience, in many great and glorious blessings. We pray that you would make yourself known to each one of us, that we would all have a saving faith in you, and no deliverance from the bondage to sin and eternal death. We pray, Lord, that we would share this message of great hope Never allow the world and Satan's influence in our lives to cause us to think that our deliverance was a small thing because it was not and never will be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.